If you haven't had a chance to meet, I want to welcome you here. I'm part of the uh, teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And uh, just before we get into our teaching time together this morning, uh, just a quick uh, staff announcement for you. And we want to announce just a transition that's happening. Uh, uh, Robin Narishlo, who has been on staff with us just a short period of time uh, over the last month, has needed to step away from her admin coordination position. Uh, she's been training for a long time uh, educationally and vocationally uh, for a unit clerking position in Surrey. And so those two things happily coexisted for about 10 days. And then uh, her work in Surrey, uh, schedule-wise, doesn't work out for her to also be with us at Jericho. And so we bless that. Fraser Health needs more missionaries working in Fraser Health. So that's good news for her and for Mike. And so uh, they're going to have a great time with that. And so that means if you were thinking about applying for the position before, but you were just really slow and didn't get to it, now it, you can do it now. So you can get me your resume, and we can talk about that a little bit later on. So all the information's online, or you can stop by and talk to her at the Welcome Center uh, and pick that up. Uh, there's some position profiles there too. So uh, that is staffing news, and we're going to move into our teaching time this morning. And this morning, we are going to look at one of the most controversial texts in the New Testament, just so you know. Uh, this is a text that in the book of Romans, where we're studying, every single word, every single, even punctuation, like there's really smart people to fight over these things and how they would influence us, but they fight over every word and every single punctuation mark in this particular text. And so uh, that's, there's a lot of controversy that surrounds uh, this particular text that we'll be looking at this morning. And uh, speaking about controversy, how many of you have uh, heard about or are aware of the controversy that's kind of been brewing for a last little bit about Rob Bell's uh, new book, Love Wins? Stick your hand up if you're... Okay, so there's a lot of kind of chatter going on in the blogosphere, particularly about Rob Bell's uh, new book, Love Wins. And uh, I'll give you a bit of a thumbnail sketch for those who aren't familiar with the controversy as to what particularly the controversy is about. So every now and then, uh, like in Christian subculture, mostly things get contained in Christian subculture fairly decently. They just kind of bump along and there's groups that disagree with each other and that's part of all part of life. But every now and then, there, there gets to be like such a controversy that it bubbles over and comes to the attention of real people in the real world. So it escapes this Christian subculture and it gets on like CNN and things like this. So Rob Bell's latest book entitled Love Wins uh, has been in mainstream pop culture and media over the last little book. And partially because of the topic of it, I think. So the topic is seen in the subtitle, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lives in 198 pages or less with lots of white space because he's Rob Bell and likes to ask lots of questions. So uh, part of the controversy is probably due to Bell's style. Uh, he likes to ask a lot of questions and then he doesn't necessarily get around to answering all of them. Uh, but he does ask some good questions. So one of the questions that he asks is, how specifically do you actually get to heaven? Like, how would a person go about thinking about that particular question? Will only a small group go? Uh, how do you get into that group? All of those types of things. And then he asks questions like, what about the fate of those who die never having heard uh, about the gospel? He asks questions like, is Gandhi in hell? And he asks lots of other questions. Uh, but as the title suggests, I should just 
give you a little bit of an alert here this morning. This is a spoiler alert. So if you were going to read the book and you wanted to be surprised by his thesis, then plug your ears, go out and watch gymnastics for a couple minutes and come on back in, and then we'll keep going. So spoiler alert, Bell's thesis is, and maybe this is no surprise because he puts it right in the title, his thesis is, in the end, love wins. So what Bell means by this uh, is, we'll discuss in a few minutes, but I think we have to say, first of all, he's asking some good questions, uh, particularly his thesis question. In the end, what is it that wins? What carries the day in the end? Is it God's mercy? Is it God's justice? Is it God's love? Is it God's judgment and God's wrath? Is it some combination of these things? Is it something or someone else altogether that wins in the end? What is it that at the end of the day has the final word in your life and in mine and the lives of every person that's ever lived? And so in the grand scope of history, this begs the question, what is God's plan? What is God up to? And how has this plan unfolded in history? And then how will it continue to unfold going forward? And maybe more relevantly for you and me, how do you and I fit into that plan? Or how does God's plan impact you and me today? So let's pray, and we're going to look together in God's Word at Romans chapter 5 this morning. So let's pray together. God, we say thank you uh, for our opportunity to gather here in this place. We recognize that there are many people throughout the globe that don't have this privileged ability to come together and study your Word. And being together in this place, God, uh, we want to say then thank you for that. We want to say thanks for your word. We have access to it. We believe that your word is truth, that it speaks to us today. And so, God, for each person here, I pray that you would open our hearts and that we would receive all that you have for us to hear from you by your spirit in this place today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, this year, as we have been going through uh, the season of Lent, in advance, the 40 days leading up to Easter, we've been studying in the book of Romans. And we've done a lot of study about different aspects of God's character and his action in the world. So we've looked at things like God's wrath in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. We've looked at God's grace. We've looked at his justice. We've looked at his patience and his mercy, his righteousness, his faithfulness, and Romans actually raises a lot of great questions on the basis of who God is and how he works in our world. And these questions are both philosophical and theological in nature. And questions like, what is sin? And what are the implications of that on our lives? Questions like, why did God give us the law in the Old Testament, which we talked about a few weeks ago? What about hell? How to avoid becoming legalistic. We've asked questions like uh, Pastor Keith asked last week. How good is good enough? Do you know, could you ever be a person who was good enough by morality to get into heaven? But still in the book of Romans, there's some unanswered questions that we haven't yet addressed. And they come up in chapter 5 because he's making a bit of a shift in his argument 
from the early part of the book now into some of the later arguments he'll make in the book of Romans. And so three of the unaddressed questions in particular come up in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. The first question, which we talked about a little bit a few weeks ago, but we didn't kind of resolve it fully because he comes back to it again in this section. And it was asked again by a friend of mine who says, okay, how does a dude eating a forbidden fruit so long ago have anything at all to do with me? And so that's a question of, again, we talked about in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, what are their choices? And how, do, how does it fare in some ways that their choices should impact and influence me and my life in some ways? So this is a question of doctrine and theology. And we started into this question in chapter 2, but now Paul's going to come back. He's the writer of this book, and he's one of the early theologians and teachers in the early Christian movement. And he's going to try and resolve it for us in chapter 5 and go ahead uh, head, right head at it in this text. The second question that he's going to answer that we haven't really resolved in any significant way is what about people who lived and died before the Old Testament law was in effect? He's talked about the law, and we've dealt with that already in terms of how a person would come into relationship with God that way. But what about before the law? What about uh, all of the pieces uh, after Adam and before Moses? What was going on there? So he's going to address this uh, in this text. And then in the end, he's going to ask the question and answer the question, in the end, what is it that wins? Is there a particular facet of God's work or his character that will carry the day in the end of history? And so this is a question of eschatology, which is a question of the future and implications and the implications for Christ's actions and what's going to happen in the future and how it then influences you and me. So that sets the table a little bit for where we're headed this morning to address some of these three questions. And remember, this is one of the most fought about texts in the New Testament. And so we may not come to all kinds of satisfactory answers for you, but you and I can have a coffee and we can, uh, we can go a little bit further in our conversation. You can do that in your life groups this week. So I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. And so verse 12 begins in the New Living Translation this way. When Adam sinned, sin entered into the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it wasn't counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who is yet to come, but there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For uh, the sin of this one man, from the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through the other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we're guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful gift of grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it 
and will live in triumph over sin and death through the one man, Jesus Christ. Adam's sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's well, a lot that's packed into these short verses. And sometimes we look at this and we think, well, what in the world is he talking about? And why does he go about discussing this issue in the way that he does? What's up with Adam and Christ and all of these comparisons? Well, it might be helpful for you to think back to your high school English class. And he's using a bit of a rhetorical technique here to help us understand and address the impact of the two greatest figures he's arguing in human history. The first one being Adam, and the second one being Jesus Christ. And so here he's asking questions again that we tackled in our first teaching series of the new year in the book of Genesis. And so the first question that he starts off with talking about Adam is, how did sin and death enter into our world? Where did those two elements come from? Were they a part of God's plan? And if so, how do we reconcile those things? if maybe they weren't part of God's plan. And so the quick backstory here from Genesis chapter 3, you'll remember, is that God created Adam and Eve to be co-stewards or co-regents with him, and they were given an incredible responsibility of stewardship of the world in partnership with God. And they were given incredible freedoms in this. They were also gifted with free will to be able to make choices. And they were gifted with limits, one limit in particular, and that was don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you remember the story that they were tempted and they fell and they made that choice as a result of their deliberate act of defiance against God. Two new realities came to exist in the world. The realities of sin and the reality of death. Now sin, Steph did a good job teaching on Romans chapter 3 and defining that for a few weeks ago for it. And that's falling short of God's perfect standard. And here Paul goes further in Romans chapter 5 to talk about death, its good buddy, and how it's a little bit even more all-encompassing in its reach. And the text here is describing for us and reminding us that when the Bible talks about death and uses the word death, in biblical language, this is both a physical concept as well as a spiritual concept. So it's, it's physiological in the sense that when you die, you're separated from your body. It's also a spiritual concept in the sense that it involves estrangement or separation from God. And so when we can put that together and help understand the Bible's is not just talking about when it uses the word death, the end of your mortal life here. There's more going on 
that you want to understand and, and scratch below the surface there. Because it helps us to understand the answer to our first big question. How does Adam and Eve's choice to defy God all of those years ago, how in the world does that influence me? To many people in our world, it seems deeply unfair that something that happened before you and I were born should have any implications for our existence as human beings. And so we have to address this in Romans chapter 5. And so first of all, we need to ask the question, why in the world does this feel to us like it's unfair? And to do this, we have to get a little bit inside of our worldview as Western individuals and as North Americans in particular. And we have to deconstruct it a little bit, which is a bit difficult to do. But sociologists tell us that one of the most defining characteristics of our worldview as Westerners is individualism. We have individualism uh, as one of our highest values, things like self-efficacy, and you hear this all over the place. They're a self-made person. In our culture, that's an extreme compliment to somebody. Or the choices that you make you know, influence you and you alone. We hear a lot about that type of thing. Well, you can't hold other people responsible for that person's choices. It's just that person's choices, and therefore we should hold them responsible for it. Self-determination, self-efficacy, where my choices influence me and nobody else is one of the highest values that we have as a society. But... Here's where we need to understand the original readers of this text have a very different worldview than we have in North America today. When they read this, they would not have thought in individualistic terminology. In fact, most people in most cultures throughout history would not have processed this text in the same way that you and I, and that question of individual responsibility in the same way that you and I think about it today. Most civilizations throughout history have been much more communal in their orientation, where they value and emphasize the group over the individual. And anthropologists call this corporate solidarity. So can you think of some examples of this from uh, either different cultures in different parts of the world or your reading of history or anything in the Old Testament you can think about? Give, give, it a, give it a world. See if there's any ideas that kind of come into your mind where there's different cultures that say the group is either more important or as important as the individual. The Amish. Yeah, in what way? Yeah. Right. Yeah, what's, what actually is best for the group is a very prominent level of discussion uh, that would carry the day in an Amish community, whereas in our culture, we, we tend maybe not to think in those terms. What's best for me? Yeah, what else? In theory, yeah, communism thinks about the society as a group and how would people go about working together. Yeah, what else? Yeah, Leo. A Japanese? Yeah, yeah. 
particularly uh, Leo's referencing Japanese culture and the way in which people are actually choosing as individuals to in some senses sacrifice themselves for the greater good and put themselves in harm's way and in danger. And there's a long and historical tradition of that in Japanese culture. Yeah. So you get the picture that not in all places at all times has individualism carried the day as a way of thinking and understanding. Classic example from the Old Testament would be in uh, the book of Joshua. And the uh, children of Israel are just starting into a military campaign and they've had their first great success at the city of Jericho. And so they have gone and they've been given specific instructions that the plunder in the city of Jericho is to be dedicated to God and it's not to be taken as individuals. Well, there's one guy named Achan who doesn't get the message or chooses not to respond to the message. And so he actually takes some and he hides it in his tent. So then they go on their next big military campaign. It's a really small city, and they think, we can totally take this. We don't even need to send the whole group. We'll just totally annihilate these little, this little town over here called Ai. So they go off to Ai, and they absolutely get slaughtered. And they come back, and they think, what in the world is going on? We got beat by, I mean, we had this amazing military victory at Jericho. Now we have this little town that comes against us, and we're totally destroyed. And then Joshua he responds and he goes back and he prays. Immediately he falls on his face and says, God, what is going on in this situation? Is there anything that would explain this? And in Joshua chapter 7, verse 11, God responds and comes to the leaders and he comes and he has a, there's an interesting phrase. Joshua says, what has happened? And God says to Joshua, Israel has sinned. Not Achan has sinned. Israel has sinned. I am, I'm holding you corporately to account and responsible for the actions of this one individual. And the individual in many, many places and thinking in our world functions as a representative of the greater society. And so the individual's function and choices impact and influence the way that the entire group experiences and processes life together. And there's an element of choice to that. And there's an element of truth that then comes into our thinking that helps us to understand a little bit about the argument that Scripture's making here, that somehow Adam's choices have larger influences than we may think about. And we bristle at this, but there's an element of truth to this, even genetically speaking, because the decisions and choices of our forebears actually do influence us. Let me give you a contemporary example. This month, there's going to be a little do over in the UK. Perhaps you've heard we're having a royal wedding. So um, think of it this way. So if Kate were to have a baby today, uh, what would the implications of that be? There'd be some significant implications I mean, I'm not saying she's pregnant. I, don't, I haven't read any like TMZ or anything like that, so don't hear me saying something that's not true. But I'm trying to make, work with me on this thought experiment. If Kate had a baby today, or let's say she had a baby a year ago, there would be some fairly strong implications that would come into play. First of all, huge scandal, engagement broken off, disavowed knowledge of the child, all the rest of it. But think with me now. Let's say she has a baby, I don't know, pick a time frame. Let's say she has a baby 18 months from now. 
If she has a baby 18 months from now, something incredibly different happens. That child would actually be in line for the throne. That child would actually be royal. And here's the real point of this illustration. The baby would inherit the throne, not by any choice of its own, but strictly by the actions of that baby's forebears. There was nothing that that baby would do to earn the throne. They could certainly discern it at some point in their life. But the throne would be theirs strictly by means of parentage. Royalty is spoken into that child's life from the get-go strictly because of the family that they are born into. And so we can say that even in our culture, to a certain extent, we understand that parentage matters. Parentage matters. And similarly, in Romans chapter 5, Paul is saying, listen, all of us are born into a particular family. We're born into a family that is Adam's family, the human family. And because of our parentage, there are certain things that are ours. And that we don't have to do anything about it. They just come to us by virtue of the family that we are born into. All I have to do is be born to receive the implications of parentage, stretching all the way back to my first ancestor, Adam. I don't have to earn them. They're simply pronounced over my life by virtue of corporate solidarity and inclusion. And so the news doesn't get any better. Not only am I and every other person who has ever lived born a sinner, alienated from God, but because I am born a sinner, alienated from God, then I sin. So it's a double negative, and it's a double whammy for us as individuals. This is double bad news, and Keith sketched this out for us last week, and Steph sketched it out for us in the past two weeks. And so Paul continues this train of thought in Romans 5 and says, listen, because of your parentage, there are two things that hold sway in your life, and you don't have to do anything about it. They just hold authority. And that is sin, and that is death. It's very depressing, actually, in the way in which he's carrying out his argument. But here, Paul has to address an immediate objection that his audience would hear. Remember, the group that's reading this has two basic categories. There's people who are newer to the Christian movement and have been formerly outsiders, don't have a long history in terms of their own lineage with God, and that is the Gentiles, but also the Jews. And the Jews have a very strong and very historic lineage. So immediately when they read this, they're saying, okay, sin and death, but, 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 what about those people that were born after Adam and before Moses? Because if God gave us the law to try and help us, so a careful student of the history has to say, okay, in order for it to count technically, Paul, as sin, there has to be a rule to break. So I will give you that Adam broke a rule, a very specific instruction that God gave to him, but what about the people after Adam until the law got there? What do you do with all those people in those intervening years? What's up with that? So it's kind of in some ways... Uh, a little bit maybe helpful to think of this in terms of a parenting metaphor. So I can give a very specific instruction or command to say to my kids. Say, say I say something to them like, hey kids, don't get the milk out of the fridge 
That is daddy's job because you will spill it. Do not get it for your cereal yourself. I will look after that, all right? I'm telling you, no milk on your own. Let daddy do it. So daddy comes down, um, walks into the kitchen one day, and oh, what is there? Milk all over the floor. Now, <laughs> Paul's argument, this is not my child, by the way. This is just hypothetically speaking, of course. None of you have ever had this happen to you. Now, Paul takes the same tactic, and he looks at kind of this milk spilled on the floor question. He says, you know what? It really, in some ways, doesn't actually matter whether you were given a specific instruction not to take the milk out of the fridge or not. At the end of the day, there's still milk spilled all over the floor. And so, well, the Jews are saying, yeah, 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 but okay, I get Adam, and I get the other people that were given the law, but the, those people, they shouldn't be held responsible for milk on the floor if they were not told about milk on the floor being a bad thing. And Paul says, you know what? At the end of the day, we've got to look at the implications of both Adam's actions and their own end results and the ultimate consequences of our actions in human beings. And so in verse 14, he's saying to them, listen, no matter how we got here, Everybody is under the influence of those same two reigning powers, sin and death. And so the question of who spilled milk on the floor, were they told not to spill milk on the floor? At the end of the day, Paul says, you know what? There's milk on the floor. And so that's what we need to look at. And the milk on the floor really is the fact that Paul is pointing to is saying, the implications are everyone dies. Everyone in their life comes to a place where they die. And so we have to ask the question of why is that the case? And so as human beings, Paul says, listen, the answer to that question is that everyone dies because even if there was no specific disobedience to a specific command, he's arguing on the basis of statistics, which are still true in our day and in our time. As near as I'm aware, the global death rate is still hovering at 100%. And so Paul's making his argument based on math. And he's saying, you know what? Because of this, because of the fact that everybody dies, we have to work backwards in our logic and see that the consequences of Adam's sin must be still in effect and hold sway over your life and mine because that's what the text tells us entered the world as a result of Adam's sin. Death came. And so... At this point, we have to say, okay, many of us fall into despair and say, okay, well then, if that's all that there is, then I might as well eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow I die. But that would miss the whole point of Paul's argument all through chapter 4 and in the early part of chapter 5. There's hope, Paul says, beyond our present circumstances because and beyond the pale of death because that is not where God's plan ends with spilled milk on the floor. Yes, parentage matters, Paul says. Yes, secondly, consequences matter. But that's not where God's plan ends. Sin and death do not have to have the final word in your life and in mine. Because Paul goes on to argue and say, we can experience a but now moment. And that's what you're going to be hearing about next weekend as people stand here and share their stories and so he turns our focus towards the second Adam, he uses this terminology, Jesus Christ. 
And what's happened to Adam, he says, it's like foreshadowing what was to come. God's plan was never just to stop with Adam and leave humanity under the experiences and the penalty of spilled milk on the floor. Before time began, God's plan was always to send his son Jesus into the world to give us the most gracious and wonderful gift that we could ever imagine. And that which, in the end, can have the sway and final say over your life and in your mind and in mine. And so to help us understand this, he goes into a compare and contrast strategy. And he wants to help us understand that in some ways, Adam's life and Christ's life are similar. And so it's kind of like, I'm going to put up a photo here for you of the first car that uh, Meg and I ever had uh, and uh, the first car that we owned together. Truth be told, Meg owned it. And uh, when we were dating, I just mooched rides off of her. So, um, uh, ladies, apparently the message of the story is if you want to attract man, men, then a hatchback is clearly the way to go. Nothing says romance like enough for 1989 Ford Escort. Anyways, I digress. Um, compare and contrast. So, let me put up another photo. And if I were to put up another photo of another car, let's say this time a 2011 Ford C-Max, which is, which is ready to be released here in North America this year, and asked you the question, in what ways are these two things alike? And in what ways would you say that they are different? So, okay, shout out some answers. In what ways are they alike? Color, yeah. They're both a Ford. Okay, what else? They both have four wheels. They both have a combustion engine. They both have windows, headlights, modes of transportation. All right, you get the picture. There's lots of ways in which they are alike. In what ways are they different? Fuel economy, all right. What else? The, well, sorry? Horsepower, yeah, absolutely. What else? Ben? Sorry? Shape, that's right. The design influences, yeah, what else? Cost, yeah. Four doors. I mean, there's lots and lots of ways that you can tease this question apart when you compare and contrast something. And so in the, this text, this is what Paul wants us to do and comparing Adam and comparing the work of Jesus Christ. And that's really the heart of his argument in this passage. And he actually does it. He keeps it real simple for us. He actually keeps those comparisons and contrasts right in the same verse. So he talks a little bit, first of all, about the ways in which they are similar. But then right away in verse 17, he talks about the way in which they are very, very different. And Adam's impact and Christ's impact function in very different ways. And so Adam's impact, he says in verse 17, Adam's impact brought death to many. Whereas Christ's saving work, through Christ's saving work, he says, grace abounds to many. In verse 16, he says, as a result of Adam's work and his choices, condemnation has come to everyone in Adam's family. But the good news is, as a result of Jesus, the second Adam, justification has come to those who will receive it. In verse 17, he says, death reigned over Adam's family. But through Christ's saving work, Sin and death have been defeated. His language continuously is language of victory. It's military language that he uses. In verse 18, Adam's impact resulted that all were condemned. In verse 18, again, he says, but as a result of Christ's work and his gift to us and his grace, life is available to all. 
Verse 19, all are sinners because of Adam's impact and Christ's saving work, many are made righteous. And his point of going over and over and over and over these comparisons and these contrasts in particular in these short verses is to answer the question that in the end, who or what wins? What is it that carries the day? What has the final word in your life and in mine and in our world? And the answer is perhaps surprising. And this is where I'll probably disagree with Rob Bell a little bit, and maybe you might think it's just semantics, but I don't think that his title is a great title because in the end, strictly speaking, it isn't love that wins. The text here in Romans 5 says that where sin increased, grace increased. In fact, literally it says when sin increased, Grace uber-increased or super-increased. And friends, this has always been God's plan. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so he spent five chapters telling us about the bad news status of every human being who's ever lived. And Romans 5, then, he begins to make this transition in his argument and say, I need to remind you, though, of a profound note of victory that is being declared over your life and over mine. In the end, grace wins. But, and here's where we return to Rob Bell's book and some good questions that he asks in it. The question needs to be asked, does grace win ultimately for everyone at all times? Now, the notion that grace wins everywhere, in every circumstance, in every situation for everyone who has ever lived is a doctrine known as universalism. And simply put, this doctrine puts forward the idea that God, since he is all-loving, could not do something to violate the all-loving nature of his character. And so God, who is love, would not do something as unloving as condemning someone to hell. And so in the end, universalism says everyone will join God in heaven because at the end of the day, God's love wins. And so supporters of this view will go very quickly to Romans chapter 5 and will say, okay, look at verse 18. Look at the language of verse 18. It says, yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. And so we have to ask the question, very rightly so, what does that for everyone mean? Your translation might say, brings it for all. Everyone will be made righteous, in the end? And so in the end, is it love that wins? One of the things that is helpful for us to do is understand and underscore that this is not what Scripture teaches. And it may seem, again, like arguing over semantics, but to say that, uh, that love wins is actually quite different than saying that grace wins. Saying that love wins actually de-emphasizes other parts of God's character and his plan. And it actually de-emphasizes the two previous elements of our discussion. Because grace wins because of the fact that parentage matters. And grace 
wins because of the fact that consequences matter. In the category of parentage mattering, to simply erase or minimize the effects of sin, as Pastor Keith reminded us last week, that's not being true to who God is and his character and the acknowledged reality of evil in our world. To say that consequences don't matter is irreverent because we understand that death still reigns in our world. Bad things still happen to good people. Middle Eastern dictators still rage against their own people. There are earthquakes and famines and all kinds of things that are rooted in the reality of death as a ruling power in our world today. The milk is out of the carton and it's not going back in. But to those who argue in favor of universalism and say, well, look at Romans 5.18. It says that all will come under the righteousness of God. Go back one verse and read Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Romans 5.17 says, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness, and here's the key phrase, for all who receive it. For all who receive it, will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Grace wins because parentage matters, consequences matter, but also grace wins because choice matters. The Bible clearly teaches that you cannot earn God's saving grace. You can't work your way into God's good books. You can't buy it by living a good life or coming to church. You enter the place where grace rules by coming in through the door. And his language here is the same as he uses the language of the kingdom of God, which is a place where God rules and reigns and God's will is actively done on earth as it is in heaven. Grace, he says, has a kingdom-like nature to it. And so you have to enter into the place where grace rules, and you come in through the door, which is the saving work of Jesus. And so we're going to conclude by looking at the implication of grace's triumph for you and for me. And I'm going to speak to a couple groups of people maybe this morning and talk about the implications in our reflection and application of understanding what it means that grace wins. The first thing is for those of you maybe who are here today and who are searching and who are curious, and who wonder a lot about questions about Jesus and how does his work in the world, and I read in the Gospels and talk a lot about Easter, about him dying on the cross for my sins. I don't quite understand the implications of that for me. and I'm not sure how that functions in, in my life. Maybe you're curious, and maybe you've never considered the philosophical or theological implications of the saving work of Jesus. And so for you today, I want to assure you of the fact that the door to experiencing God's grace in your life is open. You are welcome to step through it into the place where grace rules in your life instead of sin and instead of death. Jesus is welcoming you into the place where grace reigns. You can make a choice and leave the territory where sin and death holds sway over your life, and you can have a new word spoken over your life, a word of hope. The famous hymn, Amazing Grace, says it well. I once was lost, but now 
I'm found. I once was blind. I didn't see or understand that. But now, I do. I see. And today can be that day for you. You can have your own but now moment. And so I want to encourage you that if this is something new for you and a concept that you want to wrestle with more, we'll have people available at the sides at our prayer stations for you, just at the tables. And you can move over there and ask them any question that you have and say, I want to understand this a little bit more. I'm not quite clear on what it was that Brad was talking about today. Can you talk that out with me a little bit more? Can you show me in the scriptures what is it that that means? And you can wrestle with that. And maybe today is your day where you say, you know what? I've recognized that for a long time, but I want to walk through that door this morning. If the door is open, count me in to the place where grace reigns. The second group of people that might be here this morning that I want to address is those who have an image in their minds of what it is that you might say to God in justification for the way that you have lived and continue to live your life. I might phrase it more as a question for you. And the question would be this. What is it that you're hoping carries the day in the end? What are you hoping and placing confidence in that will carry the day at the end of your life and at the end of all things when God holds everyone to account? You see, for many people, they have all kinds of pictures in their minds of what it is that will win at the end of the day. People say, well... I mean, I've done a lot of acts of service for Jesus over the course of my life. Or I've given a lot of money to the poor. Or I've, lived, I've tried my hardest to live a good life. Or anything else that you might want to fill in there. The scripture says and reminds us clearly, it is not by works of righteousness that we have done. But it is according to his grace that he saves us. And when you and I stand before God, God gets to ask the defining question. And the question is, are you a son of Adam? Are you a daughter of Eve? And if the answer is yes to that question, then you better have a good answer. And a better answer than just, I tried to be a good person. Because in the end of the day, that will not win. I would encourage you to evaluate how will you answer that question? And I'd encourage you to be clinging to the matchless hope and joy and confidence that comes from being able to answer that question by saying, it is to the grace of God alone that I cling for my hope and salvation. And that's perhaps a last group that I want to address. And that's those who maybe have been a part of God's forever family for some time, maybe because of a distance from your own but now moment You've lost touch with the amazing and incomprehensible work that God's grace accomplished in your life. And we think to ourselves sometimes, oh yes, that's good. I'm glad others might need to be graced. But you know, I'm a pretty decent person. I experience God's grace. I'm a covenant member of my church. I do daily momentum journaling. You know, I would fill out that survey and score very high marks, I'm sure, in all of those categories. I'm coming to pragmatics tonight. But Jesus reminds us and says, those who have been forgiven much, love much. Sometimes we aren't moved so much by God's grace anymore 
And maybe it's because we think to ourselves, well, I didn't actually have or I don't actually have that much that God needs to forgive me for. Just a little cleanup is all I needed. I've been living real straight for a long time now, God. But the reminder is, don't lose touch with grace and your need for daily grace. When we lose touch with grace, we lose things like our zeal for reaching others around us. We get concerned and focused on the wrong things, what's temporary instead of what's eternal. We get hung up on all kinds of questions, most primarily how good am I living my Christian life. And so this morning I'd encourage you, it may have been a long time since you've experienced God's grace in your life, but don't lose touch with it. Come yet again this morning and every morning to the place where you refresh God's grace in your life. And as a way of reminding ourselves of the authority that God's grace has in the lives of those who have chosen to enter and the mystery and the majesty of it, we've been choosing to take communion together more regularly during this Easter season. And so I'm going to invite the team that's serving to come at this point, and they'll make their way over, and I'm going to invite the band to come, and we're going to respond this morning in that way. The prayer team will make themselves available at the side. And at Jericho Ridge, our position is that the table is open to anyone who names the name of Jesus as Savior and as Lord. And as you come to the table, as the team leads us in songs, sometimes we'll come to the table reflectively and asking God to search our hearts. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But this morning, I want you to actually come with, after you may have done some time of personal reflection, come to the table with a sense of confidence to say, when you take that bread, which represents Christ's body, which is broken for you, when you take that cup, which represents his blood, which was spilled for you, you can take it back to your seat. And before you partake, I want you to say, God, I agree with you that the defining word in my life is that grace rules. And I say thank you for that. And when you say that to yourself, and you may even want to whisper it out loud and spend time praying and thanking God for that, then come in a posture of uh, declaration and say, God, I agree with you and with your word that grace rules in my life and will have the last word. And so I drink and I partake of this bread with thankfulness overwhelming in my heart. So I'm going to invite you to stand. And then when you're ready, you can move to the table and the tone of the music will be declarative and you can simply take that back to your seats and agree with what God is speaking over your life that grace rules and then you'll respond.